Welcome all you back of the napkin ninjas, you elevator pitch artists, build a jet while you fly at school of hard knocks heroes, dreamers, doers, join us in the foxhole, in the arena of life. This is the Grand Plaster Podcast, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders, and the origin stories that made them who they are today. Hey everybody, this is Graham Plaster with a special guest, uh, Frank Giovanni, otherwise known as D9. Welcome, Frank. Thank you, Graham. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Um, so let's jump right into your story. And you have a lot of different aspects to it. But um, when I met you, you were at the Pentagon as a senior executive um, and well-respected as a, um, a creative out-of-the-box thinker in government as a change agent. Uh, but I have never really heard the backstory to how you got there. So let's just walk me through a little bit of your uh, professional career. Sure. So um, I grew up in a little town in Arizona called Casa Grande, Arizona. It's about 30 miles south of uh, Phoenix. Um, didn't really know at that time that I was a disruptor. Knew I was different, but didn't didn't really know that that, uh, you know, what was going on. Um, went to the University of Arizona, got an engineering degree, went into the Air Force, um, was a B-52 navigator initially. And then um, my team won an international bombing and gunnery competition. So we, I was, uh, I had my choice of what I could do in the Air Force. I asked to go to pilot training and I went to pilot training. Flew F-15s at Holloman Air Force Base, A-37s, down in Panama. Um, went to language school for Spanish. Um, so did, did a little tour at DLI, which was interesting. And then, um, and then, you know, got out of the cockpit and became a desk jockey, you know, so I spent half my career being a, um, being a bureaucrat. Um, but that, that time in the trenches uh, taught me a lot about like, well, if I ever get to that position, what, how do I want to be? Do I want, do I want to always tell people no and point to the rule book? Or do I want to say, look, let's, let's have a philosophy of life that says, let's find a way to say yes to people. Um, you, maybe it's yes conditional, but, but saying yes to me is much harder, but in the end, um, a lot of good things can happen. And, and that was, and that maybe have been the beginning of my, you know, like how do I disrupt bureaucracy yet stay within the lines or try to stay within the lines? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I did a bunch of staff jobs um, during that time. I went out to to uh, Las Vegas and I and I ran the bombing and gunnery range out there. It was uh, it was it was a lovely job. I mean, it would take me two days to drive around the range. That's how big it was. Um, the uh, F-117 secret base was out there, which was interesting. Was They were long gone by then. Um, but, uh, and they also ended up putting the Predator there while I was, while I was there. So um, some really interesting things that were going on there. And then, then back to the staff. And then uh, I'll just kind of fast forward. Then I showed up in OSD as a, as a colonel. 
Um, I ran the training transformation program for the Department of Defense. This was an initiative um, put out by Paul Wolfowitz to really get the services to think about how do we work together in a joint way. Um, and the incentivization, which is, you know, always works, is money. Right. So we're not asking you to do something for free. We'll provide the resources for you to actually operate in a joint manner. And that program is, is still alive today. Um, quite a, the budget's quite a bit reduced, but it's still alive today. So, you know, 20 some odd years. Um, and then in OSD, um, you, know, you know a lot of what I did in OSD. So um, I moved up through the ranks, became the director of the office, ran the advanced distributed learning um, initiative, uh, which was a White House initiative and, and pretty phenomenal one too. For those, yeah, for those that don't know what advanced distributed learning is, maybe break that down a little bit. So advanced distributed learning was actually an a initiative by the Clinton White House to, um, to look at how the, how the federal government could better did, uh, leverage um, the digital age, the information age. Um, they felt that the learning processes that were being used were, you know, they date back to the, uh, to the industrial age. So the, the Victorian period of, of learning, you know, with people sitting in a classroom. And advanced distributed learning was really designed to leverage the budding internet, the budding computer world, the budding ability to take learning and, and put it at the virtual level. Um, which was really, if you think about it, I mean, this was in the 90s, um, the late 90s. I mean, it, that that is very, very um, prescient or visionary when it comes to really understanding where technology was taking us. And, you know, you fast forward today to COVID and you go, my God. I mean, we almost totally went to a complete virtual learning model that was envisioned, you know, 20 some odd years ago. Um, I don't think we, we didn't get as far as we needed to, yeah. but, but it was a, it really was a phenomenal um, initiative. Well, ADL is still, still in place, right? So yes, an organization. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I, I, you know, I don't think it's as groundbreaking uh, maybe as it was in the early days. And we never really met the true charter, which was to get out and push the, all of the federal government, so not just the DOD, it was everybody in the federal government. We, we were responsible for research and development across the entire federal government. Um, I don't think it, I don't think wait, that- So wait, ADL was, I thought it was under OSD. So you said you were, you were responsible for all research and development around digital education for the whole federal government? That's correct. But it was, that an, was, it was an OSD initiative that correct. was whole government? Interesting. Yes. And there, and you know why? I mean, it happens a lot with the DoD, right? So we're the biggest, we're the biggest brother on on the block, you know, and um, and we have the largest budgets, and um, and we had a very established research and development capability. So I think when they looked at like who could lead this initiative for the federal government, they felt the DoD was in the best position to do that. But as I said, I don't think. I don't think we realized that as well as we should have. Um, you know, I did reach out to the Department of Education um, and uh, the VA. So there were some, you know, there were some initiatives that we worked with those organizations, but not to the level that I think was originally envisioned. Yeah, that that's interesting. 
Okay, so you were at ADL and then where'd you go from there? <laughs> so from there, <clears throat> I and while I was there, and we can talk about this, uh, while I was at OSD, um, I worked on my doctorate's degree and I, and I got my doctorates from Penn. And um, my research topic was hackers. And I looked at two, two very specific things about hackers. Um, and these were people that were, had made the, the jump from the black hat community to the corporate infosec community. And what I was interested in is what makes these high-end hackers so good? What, what, what are the unique soft skill capabilities of these people that allows them to be so good in this area? And, and a little bit of like, well, why did they get into it? We can talk about that too. And then the second piece was there was a bit of tradecraft that they used that allowed them to move back and forth between the black hat community and the corporate infosec community. Because, I mean, these are countercultures. And the fact that, um, that they would actually work together is, is a kind of a question, like, what, why? What, yeah, why what, would what, they do that? What got, you, what, what got you interested in this particular you know, thesis? It's an excellent question. Um, so while I was at, in OSD, mm -hmm. I was asked to lead for the department, the Cyber Workforce Initiative. And this initiative uh, was an Ash Carter initiative. And what he was trying to do was like, how do I grow the cyber workforce? How do I recruit it? How do I retain it? How do I develop it? Part of the workforce of the future initiatives. Yes. Time, right? Yeah. And I led the force of the future technology working group for that same related initiative. And, and as I looked at this, Graham, as I looked at the problem set, the first thing that came to mind is, and this goes back to that industrial age thing that I was talking about, we were treating cyber like a traditional learning environment. So we'll put you in a classroom, you teach, we'll, 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 we'll have a sage on the stage, we'll give you a PowerPoint briefing and voila, you're a cyber operator. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I was like, and, and like, well, who are we bringing in? And so what really fascinated me was, as a recruiting tool, I really needed to know who are we looking for? I mean, it's just like an, being an aviator as a pilot. I mean, not everyone can be a pilot. Not everyone wants to be a pilot. Um, so, so there's a screening mechanism that says, well, you have to have these kinds of things to really be good at this job. We weren't doing that in cyber. We were taking people from the Intel community, from the comms community, from the IT community, we're going, well, you know, computers, we'll just put you over here. Right. So, so I didn't feel like we were doing the due diligence. And so I was very interested in, in who, what the soft skills were, what, how do we find the people that have those soft skills? And then how do we build a, an education curriculum that leverages and builds upon those strengths so that when we send them out into the ether, you know, they're ready to go. So that's how I got interested in it is, is, you know, I asked that fundamental question, which a lot of times people don't ask. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, it is a very fundamental question across DOD, which is, do I do a new build talent skill? You know, do I take somebody who has got zero, put them through boot camp and try to get them up to expert with all, you know, the best training and equipment? Or do I recruit based on 
propensities, you know, <laughs> whether you're a hacker or a Navy SEAL or whatever, like how, how much is nature, how much is nurture in that pipeline? And, you know, especially with language training, which is what, you know, language and culture, uh, a lot of it is nature or at least culture, right? It's what this the water yeah. you swim, you swim in when you're young prepares you even before you hit a classroom to do certain things and to care about certain things. So that once you get assessed incorrectly, you know, you take off, you hit the ground running. And that that was kind of the theory, Graham. I mean, um, and I will tell you, the research proved it out. Mm -hmm. I mean, my research proved it out. It, it, it definitely showed that, you know, just because you were smarter, you knew how to use computers, didn't necessarily make you a good um, cyber operator. Mm -hmm. So what were the, what were some of the uh, soft skills you identified and what was, you know, some of the conclusion you came to as far as how we should attack that? Well, there were seven, um, and I won't go over all of them, but I'll cover some of the key ones. So the first thing, the first one is um, extreme autodidactic learning. So these people were all about teaching themselves. And, um, and they had this very extreme intrinsic motivation to learn. So that's, you know, not everyone has that, but that was certainly one of them. Another trait was an inability to change focus or task. So many of them, once they got into a hack, would work that hack until it was solved. This could take days, sometimes weeks. They would fall asleep at their computer. They'd wake up and go right on to back on the keyboard. And this was mind numbing work, right? So, so think about a human being that could go, well, I have this problem solved and by God, I am not gonna let go until I solve it. Mm -hmm. To the point where they wouldn't eat, they wouldn't sleep. I mean, it consumed their life. One of, one of the people I interviewed said, Look, I would work a hack until I died. If I didn't solve it, I'd die first. Mm -hmm. That's what he said. I mean, who says that? What? Okay, so what was the driver for that type of person? Like, what? It was just a sense of satisfaction in solving a puzzle, or? Oh. Uh, yes. And it wasn't yes. a greater mission and purpose, right? It was actually like, it was the problem in front of them, right? It's like a. It, it's. It was. So this goes back to the history of some of these people, right? So the, in the end, the research showed the motivation was social capital. And what do respect. I mean by that? Like social res like respect among peers? Yes. And so what happened, you know, if you actually look at some of these folks, so the interesting thing is many of the people that got into hacking were bored. And they and they they lived in rural areas, so there was nothing to do. When the computer came came uh, available to people, it opened up an entirely new world to people who were in a rural area with nothing to do. Mm -hmm. And then the people that really got into it, I mean, these a lot of these high end hackers were, you know, and I and I have to, you know, I don't I don't mean it in any derogatory way, but they were normally outcasts. They normally didn't fit in with the rest of the, the crowd. Yeah. Um, they were 
normally they, they could have been bullied as kids or misunderstood, right? And so that, that created, you know, I'm not a psychologist, um, but, it, but it created a huge intrinsic motivation to prove to the world that they were better than most of them, if not all of them, right? And so when, so many of the motivations for the hack were, this is, you know, this is, you know, industry X, an icon in industry, they build these computer things, yet I'm smarter than them because I went in there and I found a mistake that they didn't see. That's the motivation. Yeah. And the social capital, yes, you can't personally award yourself social capital, but the fact that you can tell someone that some of the world's best programmers, that you're better than some of the world's best programmers because you found mistakes they didn't see, Mm-hmm. And you and you pwn them, PWN own them. Right, right. They say pwn them, you know, you pwn them. That's huge. It's a huge motivator. Mm-hmm. But that's a lot of yeah. what that's a that's that's a lot of what drove um their thinking. I think and some of them, most of them, well, I have to be careful about that. A lot of them told me they were on the autism spectrum. And yeah. you and I talked mm-hmm. a little bit about that. Right, right. Yeah, that's interesting when you start to look at the possibility of actually recruiting people from those pools, right, of uh, people on the spectrum being more naturally gifted and focused or something like that. Um, Did you all, this is a tangent, but did you look at the hacker communities of other countries like Romania or other places that have just large pools of black hat hackers? I did. Uh, not, not, Not extensively, but I can tell you and I did when I was doing as soon as I glommed out of the fact that there was an autism linkage, you know, I tried to find research on that. Was very little. Yeah. But one of the um, countries that seemed to recognize that and uh, was Israel. So if you look at their cyber operations community, because you know it's it, it, there's conscript service, right? They go out and purposely recruit high school students you know particularly ones that are on the autism scale and go look we can put you on the front lines carrying a rifle but you might really enjoy this thing over here so they actively recruit people with some of the soft skills that i talked about particularly those on the autism spectrum on the high on the high functioning end of the spectrum to to uh, serve in their cyber force um I have spoken with the Australians about it, and I've spoken with it to the Brits about it. And both of them have started programs that focus specifically on um, high-functioning autistic men and women to serve in their cyber force because, because of that kind of gift, as you said, their, mm-hmm. their inability to disengage, but if used in a, for good, it can be quite powerful. Mm. Interesting. And- it seems like some of those soft skills, not to encourage it, but just like if you were on a long plane ride and you wanted to um, take caffeine and stay up, it seems like some of the, you know, ADHD medications would help increase focus to to help, you know, medically assist people that are trying to to do a long hack or something. I'd be curious to know the, the, the crossover between natural giftedness and enhanced giftedness. It's, a, it's an interesting thought. I mean, there's, there's certainly... Um... You know, in the full motion video review, there's certainly been some research done by DARPA to look at 
brain stimulation, for example, to keep people's thought processes sharp. Okay. Um, so yeah, there probably is something there. You're you're right. Yeah, there's a whole movement to do like biohacking with with different things, but not my not my forte. Um, so so after you did your um, your PhD, uh, what what did you do with that, and what have you done since? So so I, I left OSD, and this goes to my disruptive nature, right? Because who does this? So I left OSD and I went to the Navy, and uh, I spent a year working with the N1, mostly helping them with their transformation effort. For man, they were they were trying to totally change their manpower training, education, and personnel system, and it was quite a complex project. Um, so I did that for a year, and then uh, and then I moved over to um, the N9, totally something totally different called expeditionary warfare, and. Uh, and I was the deputy director there, and I was basically doing requirements and programming for what they call them dirt sailors, but anything that dealt, dealt with the land. So, you know, we built the amphibious ships for the Marine Corps. We did EOD. We did Navy Special Forces. We did mine warfare, you know, all the kind of one-offs in the Navy, but it was a fascinating job. Really enjoyed it. Um, but but uh, as far as work on my cyber stuff, well, I, I've been interviewed a couple of times. Uh, I'm in uh, Richard Clark's book on, on the fifth domain, um, Solving the People Problem. I'm chapter nine. So, so that's... Uh, well, it's perfect. Do you know I get chapter nine? I, I did get chapter nine. <laughs> <laughs> the, you know, and, and they, they felt, uh, you know, because I had an initiative about, and we can talk about this. This is one of the things that is, that I'm passionate about is, the cyber workforce today, I mean, we the talent, we're not, we're not building new talent. We're just not. I mean, there's some, you know, we're doing working at it on the fringes, but for the most part, the really good talent just moves around. And, and every time they move, their salary goes up. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I I I talked about um one of the things I wrote about, and it's in, in, in my LinkedIn profile, if somebody, anybody wants to go look at it, is I talked about learning, building the cyber force by learning from the last time we had a piece of disruptive technology come into the, into the defense space. And, and I argued that aviation was that disruptive technology. That, it's, that it started out as, a, you know, in World War One, they were ob ob they were part of the Signal Corps, so they were doing observation, right? Oh, let's see, what did we do with with cyber in the beginning? Oh, it was part of the intel and and, and um, surveillance, you know, community. So you go, hmm, that's an interesting. There's there's a parallel there, and then we decided that no, actually, it's a strategic. Actually, aviation is a strategic weapon. It can overfly the battlefronts and deliver lethality directly to the capital of, you know, of an of a of a foe, right? When the objective is, you know, to capture the flag, you know, capture the capital, right? But yet this this capability could dispense with all of the the run up to that and and strike at the heart of the enemy's command and control capability or leadership capability. So. Um, and then, of course, Pearl Harbor happened, 
And um, we all of a sudden went, oh my God, yes, that's right. Holy cow, a country from thousands of miles away, you know, hit, hit our, attacked our country and we didn't even see it coming. So, you know, that energized the community and they, and of course, sorry, um, that energized the community and we went from a 20,000 person Air Force. There, let me start. Sorry about that. To, to uh, you know, one that was several million. And how did we do that? We leveraged the society. We leveraged the community. We looked at community colleges. We had small um, flight base operators bring in promising pilots, they would put them through basic training. And if they were, if they had the propensity, then they were moved, they were recruited into the Army Air Corps. And so we were able to build this huge aviation um, capability in just a matter of years. And so you go, wow, well, if they did that in the 40s, why can't we do that for the cyber force today? Why can't we go out and and get the community college energized, get people to understand what the soft skills are and who we're looking for. And then, and then build that force to a point where we would never have to, we would never have to worry about um, cyber attacks again, because we would have this huge, very competent force. And the other thing that's interesting about the aviation um, parallel is that in the 1950s, all those pilots didn't have a job. Where did they go? To the commercial sector, which then fed the entire aviation industry as we know it today. Mm-hmm. So it was a huge, you know, there was a huge bounce from that from that effort, which, which then created a, you know, a trillion dollar industry over here in aviation, you know, in commercial aviation. And, yeah. and when you look at, you know, when you look at the ability of the DOD really taking a hold, building that cyber force, and then seeding that, that expertise out into wherever it's needed, the parallels are, are really interesting. Yeah. I mean, this is a whole other conversation. We don't have to get into it. But, you know, coming out of, obviously, World War II, both my grandfathers were veterans of World War II, and neither one of them probably would have gone to college except for the GI Bill, you know. And so they came back from the war uh, one in the Army Air Corps, another one in the Navy, uh, both enlisted, and uh, they both went to college. And as a result, they transformed their families, you know, uh, with education. And that was across the whole country, right? All these veterans coming back and going to college, right? It was it transforming the nation with, with sending a whole generation, not just of people to college, but veterans to college, veterans who had seen war and had grown up. Um, and had responsibility and, you know, saw the world in a certain way and valued their education, right? And at the time, the education system was not so decadent. You know, the degrees that were offered were probably more closely aligned with the actual industries on on the back end, um, as opposed to go study whatever you want and hopefully, you know, the world will bring you a a job on a silver platter when you graduate. Um, So, I would have to say that probably terraformed the whole, you know, education landscape, uh, that period, that in ways that I haven't studied deeply, but I've thought about it. And, you know, I'd be curious to know your thoughts about that, too, you know, with you know, your vision of the future of educa- decentralized education and the current state of 
the tuition bubble that, that kids are facing, the, the, the gap in vocational education, the, the community college education, and then the cyber literacy where you can recruit somebody right out of high school who has natural skills, plug them into a startup and they're, they're getting paid a ton of money and they have no incentive. I mean, Peter Thiel's paying people to drop out of college with the Thiel, you know, fund, right? Fellow, uh, Thiel fellows. So, you know, what are your thoughts on how to guide kids right now coming out of COVID and online schooling, you know, what do they do with their college trajectory? So Graham, you're right. This is a much longer conversation, but I will, I will, uh, I will answer you because um, you're absolutely right. The pro the problem, and I said this, you know, because uh, I led the licensing credentialing task force for the DoD, you know, and it was all about the trades. Really, it was all about certificates and trades and learning a skill that maybe had a hands mind component to it. Um, instead of forcing everyone into, you know, if you want to be successful, you have to go to college, right? So I said that in front of um, uh, a, a um, um, it was ACE. So it was essentially a bunch of educators. And I said, look, not everyone needs to go to college. There are wonderful jobs that don't require a four-year college degree um, where a, someone can have a very, an extremely successful career and, and raise their family in a, in a, in a phenomenal way. And, uh, and I thought I was going to get booed out of the room. And believe it or not, many of them came up to me and said, thank you for saying that. Uh, so so um, I'll, I'll give you another quick example in the cyber world. So I, I was at a conference. It was mostly bank investors, bankers, right, who were worried about cybersecurity. And I went around the room. And I said, OK, what are the requirements for you to hire someone into your um, cybersecurity branch? Well, you have to have a four-year degree. It has to be in computer science. And I said, OK. So let's say they have to go to get a four-year degree, and there's probably a six to eight-month um, uh, run-in time for them to be confident to work in your area. You go, yep, about four and a half years. Okay, so do you know how long it takes for a hacker to learn the skills to break most of the things that you're trying to protect? No, six months. So let's see, you're losing the cyber war because it takes you four and a half years minimum to produce someone on, on the defensive side. And on, and on the offensive side, it takes six months. So guess what? You're losing. There was a pin drop. I mean, it was a drop my moment. I mean, nobody said anything. I don't, I hope they got it, but, but that's the point. The point is this is a cyber operations is a hands-on skill set. It's a hands-on keyboard. There is a cognitive thing, and it really is associated with their ability to problem solve. You need to, you have to be confident in your ability to to attack something that you've never seen before, and have confidence in your abilities that you can you can resolve it. Yeah, and and that doesn't come from four years of college. That doesn't come from a sage on the stage telling you, well, this is how you do cyber. It comes from you having confidence in your ability to do something. Also, that first soft skill you mentioned to be autodidactic. I mean, that's something that across all disciplines, if you can instill that at a young age through you know mentorship and modeling, you know, to help kids to be 
and grownups to be uh, lifelong learners and to be passionate and curious, you know, uh, that transforms the learning cycle from four years to six months for a lot of things, right? If I don't have to wait for my uh, instructor to give me the reading assignment, but I just take my Saturdays and Sundays to go to the library and, or, you know, w Wikipedia University, app, iTunes University, you know, as so I told my kids the other day, the great disruption of the university system right now is these free online curricula. The problem is it doesn't give you a certificate that says you're authorized to do heart surgery. Uh, and it doesn't give you the social network of graduating from Harvard or Stanford, but it might give you the functional knowledge to do something. So there's three, in my opinion, three discrete values of a formal education, the certificate, the functional knowledge, and the network. And if you can... Uh, parse those out and, and accomplish them in different ways. Maybe you can uh, give people a network just through LinkedIn networking, or you can give people a certificate through a vocational school or a community college, or you can give them the functional knowledge through YouTube. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, we're seeing the breakdown of the three. Yeah, I think, you know, um, you're absolutely right. This is the biggest thing that I struggled when I put a cyber training course together was benchmarking the competency level of the people that graduated from it. You know, and that's the beauty of, you know, the one thing that's that's good about a college degree is that it's benchmarked. Everybody knows the level of competency for the most part that one has when they graduate. You know, you're smiling as you should. But for the most part, one can assume that if you went through that arduous four year period that, you know, not only do you have the intellectual capacity, but you might have the you know tenacity to, you know, to be successful in the workplace. Um, and so it's it's, a, it's an excellent point. The benchmarking issue is is really a tough one. And what I did was I, I moved toward a certificate based um, approach, not the usual you know certificate mill, but one that where it was a company based exam where you had to go in and prove that you had the skill sets to do something. Um, and and I think in the future as we move toward this kind of education we need to move to a competency based approach right so it's not so much well here's my you know here's my sheepskin no why don't you sit down here and show me what you can do or here's a practical exam show me the skill set you have and then and then you're wipe, then it's you know then it's the level playing field again but i think you know, that's a big paradigm shift which is why some of the technical companies have switched to a hiring process which is show me what you can do here you know, here's a problem, solve the problem. This is an interview, like, you know, show me your skills. Um, and that, in a sense, is bypassing the need for the certificate, right? Or the, mm -hmm. the, the, the degree. Yes. Yeah. And when we were, we sent, a, we sent a bunch of welders up to Canada um, when I was doing the certification process. And, and uh, they said, we don't care what certificates you have. Right. When you get up here, we're going to ask you to weld. And if you can if you can weld, you you get a, you get a job. Yeah. So they didn't care. Yeah. They didn't care if they were certed or not. They just said, mm -hmm. "We're going to give you a practical exam. If you can pass, you're in." Yeah, yeah. Because if you grew up on a farm welding and you never actually got a degree, but you, you're really good at it, you know. Exactly. They didn't you know? care. They just needed <laughs> welders. <laughs> well, okay. So, um, so you were at you were at N1 and then N9. And then uh, at some point you, you started a coffee shop or you're in the process of doing that. Was there yes. more after the story after N9 or? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, look, as you said, I'm, I'm, 
I've been a disruptor and I've, you know, and it's a band and a blessing, as you know. I mean, disruption, most people, everybody says they want it, but then when you actually do it, um, they don't like it. Right. Um, and, and uh, you know, I mean, I will, without mentioning names, I can tell you that the CNO told me when I first came to work at N1, he said, you know, I really want you to go shake things up. Mm. I mean, he purposely came to me, tapped me on the back in a meeting, and, he, and that's what he told me. Yeah. And my answer to him was, sir, you should be careful what you ask for. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, I was a little too much for, for, the, for that part of the Navy. But, you know, look, it's, but on the other hand, if you don't disrupt, you probably die. You know, it's right, disrupt or die, right? I mean, that that's what happens. I mean, you you either change and move, and and um, or or you uh, get left behind, or you become extinct. And so it's a you know it's an interesting conundrum. I don't want to go into too much of the philosophy of that. We probably that's another blog, but but um, you know the the conundrum of you need to survive. You need to continuously evolve. But there's a huge amount of resistive force involved in in that transformation process that that in many ways um, keeps a lot of people from from evolving. Sure. Yeah. Who moved my cheese? No. <laughs> so so uh, you know you have to be brave, man. If you're going to be a disruptor, you got to be able to to take the punishment along with the reward because. Um, and there's more punishment than there is reward. Yeah. Well, and there's a winsome way to do it. And I think your leadership exemplifies that. You know, you can be a diplomatic uh, disruptor uh, and present new ideas, you know, rigorously with the right tone. You know, a good friend of mine, Admiral Paul Becker, his three words are teamwork, tone, and tenacity. And if you have those, you know, those three core values, you know, you can be a disruptor and still have friends and maintain a lot of your, uh, you know, social capital. You're right. It's a, you have to learn that because most disruptors are, are pretty much um, bulls in a China shop. Um, yeah. And, and the, the ones that do survive to reach the um, leadership positions have learned to, to take the rough edges off of that disruption. Right. And to your point, and be much more elegant about how it's presented. Still push, but but be very elegant and and read the read the audience too, right? So, you know, if you, there's a lot of negative basis in the room, then you know you, you need to throttle back a little bit and and try again. Yeah, yeah, and figure out which hill you're going to die on. Pick your battles. Exactly. Um, okay, so but no, tell me about your coffee shop. So, got a little coffee shop. Um, it's in Reedville, Virginia. Um, you know, just out of the blue, my, my son got into roasting. We said, well, hell, let's let's join the business. So we bought this old uh, bank building. It's a 1910 building. Um, and um, it still has the vault in it. Uh, it's very unique architecture for down here because it's made up totally out of brick. A Tuscan, it has a big Tuscan portico, which most of the houses down here are um, kind of farmhouse or four squares or Victorians. 
So there's this brick edifice in the middle of these, you know, this kind of farm community. Yeah. So it's a unique building. I guess it fits yeah. my personality. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, with the Di Giovanni, you could have a Tuscan villa and, and really live it up. I love the porch. It's surrounded on three sides by water. So I'm about 100 yards on three sides by water. Oh, so nice. that's, I'm at the end of the road. And and we're just out here having fun. You know, I'm I'm doing the construction work myself. Been doing been working on it for about two years and um, we're slowly putting it together. And, and we hope to give back to the community, um, both in saving a historic building as well as providing um, something for the community as far as a place to meet, a place to drink coffee, a place to you know, to network. So that, that's kind of what we're doing. That's awesome. I, I look forward to visiting. How far are you from DC? About two and a half hours. Okay. So two and a half hours south, and it's a lovely drive. Okay. <laughs> you know, two and a half hour drive for some coffee. I'd do it. <laughs> there you go, man. That's what we're that's what we're counting on. All right. Well, what um what are some ways that people that hear this podcast can participate in any of the stuff you've done or you're doing or you're passionate about? Well, I think, um, you know, I think the first thing is help, help with the understanding in the community about, about the trades, about a journeyman apprentice learning model, about the fact that not every person needs to be successful by going to college. That's a tough one because we've been programmed for 50, 60 years that we, you know, you need to go to college to be successful, but but I'm telling you, um, particularly as we move into the information age and we move to a knowledge workforce, um, there's a need for highly skilled technicians that don't require a college degree. But as we move to all this automation, all of the, all of the software in our life, that knowledge workforce is gonna become critical. And if we're, and if we're relying on a four-year degree to help us there, you're wasting a lot of, of time. And, and you're forcing people to do some things that maybe they don't wanna do. Maybe they, they wanna go right on and do hands-in work. So, so help encourage those that you believe have that skill set. that there are other alternatives out there. You know, I'll, I'll mention Mike Rowe. I mean, I actually invited him to the Pentagon. I had lunch with him. He's a phenomenal dude. And that's yeah, his is. message. That's yeah. his message, right? Um, and one quick uh, quip, um, we, I was walking around the Pentagon with him and somebody yelled, hey, Mike, there's a lot of dirty jobs in the Pentagon, too. You should come here and do a show on the Pentagon. Oh, that'd be great. Which, which makes sense. But, but I mean, his message is right on. And, then, and, and so I, I think help, 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 help us with that. Um, the cyber, you know, understand that the cyber threat is real and it can do serious damage. So this is one of the reasons why I'm passionate about building that cyber force because, because those who mean to do us harm, it, it, it doesn't trigger the amygdala. It doesn't trigger that fight or flight because it's so esoteric. It's, so, it's not a physical threat to your body, but, but it's, it's definitely a threat. And so, you know, help me get the message out about that. And then I think the last piece in, in the current job that I'm in, because I, I work for a small R&D company, you know, my job is to go out there and find niche technology from from small businesses and small innovators and bring that into the department. So, you know, if you got a if you got a good, cool piece of technology that you think the Defense Department might want to know, you know, um, get a hold of me, let me know and 
and not, and you know my job is really to try to help you transition that technology into the department if if it has merit. So, you know, reach out to me if you think you've got something like that. Cool. All right, and uh, you already mentioned your LinkedIn, but are you uh, engaged with any other platforms people should know about? Uh, just professionally, just LinkedIn, but you know, my coffee house is on Facebook and Instagram. So, you know, if you want to follow us on Instagram or Facebook, I'd love to have more followers, you know, look us up. I, I kind of post what I'm doing on the construction. So, you know, that has nothing to do with what we just talked about, but right. if you're interested in coffee, you know, go ahead and, uh, and follow us on, on Facebook or Instagram. Awesome. Thanks so much for listening to the show today. I'm Graham Plaster, and you've been listening to the Graham Plaster Podcast. Get show notes and more at grahamplaster.com.